Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld, continuing our series, Faith That Works, with a message entitled, Winning the War Within and Without. So let's turn in our Bibles to James chapter 4, verses 1 to 10, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. James 4 verses 1 to 10 contains some of the harshest language found in the New Testament. In some ways, the language of this passage mirrors some of the harshest language found in the Old or in the First Testament prophets. See, we have in James a harsh denunciation for sin and also a fervent call for repentance. He names sin in strident, severe words, and and he calls for turning from sin in words that demand wretchedness and loud cries of mourning. The issue that drives James' strong denunciation has to do with quarrels and fights taking place in the church. These are the kinds of things that we often excuse, saying, you know, well, that stuff kind of happens, and yet James thinks differently. We don't know the details about the situation he's addressing, but we do know that in the previous chapter, he had warned about the destructive use of the tongue in which those things that people said brought untold damage. You know, it may be that James is acutely aware of how gossip or slander or accusations against others has divided churches. And as all of us today know, this is not just a first century issue, it's also true of our day. You know, truth be told, church division is not an isolated matter. Sometimes pastors are unjustly removed from their congregation, resulting in years of mistrust. And sometimes pastors sin against their congregation, and that also results in damage. Sometimes an open squabble between key people in a congregation finds its way into the whole church. Such must have been the case in Philippians 4, verses 2 to 3, where Paul writes, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Translation, get involved. Those who are mature, let them serve as peacemakers. This has got to end. You know, Paul mentions a similar situation in, in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same judgment. Of course, then Paul adds, I've been told about the quarrels in your congregation. Four factions had been allowed to develop. It might be easy to dismiss quarrels until we come to James. James makes it clear that a great many quarrels come about because Christian people are not learning wisdom from God. Instead, they've never let go of the wisdom of this world. Being guided by earthly, fleshly, and demonic wisdom, they've brought great harm to the people of God. So how important is that? Well, 1 Corinthians 3 verse 17 says, If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Check the context. Paul's not speaking about smoking or damaging our own physical bodies. In the context, Paul is speaking about the church. If anyone destroys God's church, God will destroy him. That's that's a threat. Don't you dare do harm to the body of Christ. Now, rather than simply saying, you need to work on this stuff, James is overwhelmingly severe. Taking the role of a prophet, he utterly denounces this stuff. And then, like a gentle pastor, he provides a formula as to what to do. That's because any good pastor doesn't just condemn people for their sin. Like a gentle shepherd, he provides a way forward. 
So let's read the passage that we began yesterday, but we'll read the entire one today. James 4, 1 to 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is of no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You know, yesterday I discussed the first two verses, which really are the harshest words that James uses. But as we're going to see today, James the prophet is not yet done. He still has a few words of denunciation left. So I'm rereading verses 2b to 3. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James has been making the point that the major cause behind quarrels is that people can't get what they want. That's where all the acrimony comes from. But, says James, here's the problem. The unmet worldly desires you have come about because of the devastation that exists in your personal prayer life. See, here's what happens. You know, for many of us, the things that motivate us, which we think about and dream about, are what the world offers. So, why don't you pray about that? Why don't you ask God to give you what the world offers? Pray, pray this way. Oh, Lord, I'd love to commit adultery. Would you help me do that? Or how about this? Oh, Lord, I want the power to dictate my will over others. Would you give me the ability to have my own way? Or how about this? Lord, help me when I get angry to win every argument to put everyone else in his or her place. Or how about this one? Lord, I don't like Brother Larry. Would, would you help me to slander him so utterly as to destroy him and remove him from our fellowship? <laughs> well, you might answer, well, God won't answer that. And so you never pray about that kind of stuff, do you? Well, the truth is, you would either find praying like that embarrassing, or you would already know that God's not in the business of giving you that. So you never pray about that stuff. So here's a little hint. The reason why some of us don't pray, and we haven't prayed for years, is because the things we want most are not the things that God wants. And so our relationship with God is broken. So there's devastation, and non-existent prayer life results in broken relationships and fights that result in bitterness. Can it get any worse than that? Well, yeah, it can. Having given us the danger, now James issues a warning. Beginning at verse 4, he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? I want you to notice something that's missing in our translation. The Greek actually reads, you adulteresses. It's, it's feminine. Now, that doesn't mean that James is addressing the women in the church. He's addressing everyone. But he's referring to something that you often find in the Old Testament prophets. 
God is there called our husband, and Israel is called his wife. James is simply borrowing that image. Here's what he is saying. You're sleeping around on God. I mean, imagine the following scenario. A wife tells her husband, I will have relations with you on Friday, but the rest of the week I'm going to be sleeping around. The husband says, well, that breaks our marriage vows. That ends in the divorce courts. But she's adamant. Look, she says, I'm faithful to you every Friday. Well, that's how God views us if we give him only one day of the week and and live for ourselves the rest of the week. God says, you're having sex with the world. And the point James is making is that we have become like an adulterous wife. Now, look, I, I know that there are some people out there who boast about having an open marriage. They claim that adultery is not going to hurt their love for each other. So let's just be clear, shall we? It's not God. He describes himself as a jealous God who will not allow other gods before him. Now, to the latter part of verse 4. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, that word friendship is a word we in our culture tend to use lightly. We can use it to simply mean an acquaintance. But in the Bible, a friend is someone who shares our interests and values and goals and sees life in the same way as we do. So think about that. If your interests and goals roughly look like what you see on television, you're a friend of the world. You're sleeping around on God. And and where is God in all of this? Well, the answer, according to verse 5, is that God has become to us like an outraged enemy. Verse 5, or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? That's a very difficult verse to translate. It's equally possible that James could be saying that that we, that is, in our human spirit, we envy the world intensely, meaning we're simply locked in as an adulterous wife is. So we're telling God, I get that you're angry, but I can't help myself. I, I love sleeping around. Or as we have in our translation, this verse might mean that God jealously yearns over our human spirit to submit to him. Like a jealous lover, he yearns with great zeal that we repent or change. But either way, no matter how we see this verse, God yearns jealously for us. And what is then to become of us? Back to the Bible Canada has just wrapped up another fiscal year. And we're beyond grateful for all your gifts toward our year-end target. Your generous donations have helped position this ministry for another successful year of sharing the gospel in every way imaginable. We're so excited for everything we have in store for this next year, so stay tuned. Our match campaign in June was a huge success, but we're humbled to say the amount of the pledges we received for the match campaign exceeded our expectations. Therefore, we're able to extend the campaign into July with an additional $75,000. So dollar for dollar, your gift will be matched up to an additional $75,000 in the month of July. We're so grateful for your gracious support right across Canada. So to double your impact, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Just when James paints a picture as black as can be, come these five words at the beginning of verse six, and they are hopeful. 
but he gives more grace. God, our jealous lover, gives more grace. That is, while we seem helpless in our worldliness, James offers an overwhelming promise. He gives more grace. How is that possible? For we have certainly not deserved grace. (laughs) But if we deserved grace, it wouldn't be grace, would it? I see two important things in the first part of James 4. First, I learn what gives rise to my worldliness, what gives rise to my love affair with the wisdom from below. I see now why it is that I seek my own pleasure rather than God. It comes down to one thing. It's called pride. You know what pride is? Pride says it's all about me. Humility says it's all about God. Pride says I'm going to satisfy myself, and humility says I will put myself second. Pride says, don't you get in the way of the things I need. And humility says, I'll gladly sacrifice what I desire for the sake of something much greater than myself. You want to know why some of us are bitter and disappointed and angry and disillusioned and filled with anxiety? It's because we're proud. You want and you don't get. John Piper once said, no one ever stood before the Grand Canyon seeing it for the first time and said, I'm amazed at my greatness. Here's what we need. We need a vision of an altogether lovely God that satisfies the cry of my heart. So so how do we get that? So the first words in James 4, verse 6, he gives more grace. Here's what I learned. There is, in those five words, an incredible promise. If you want it, God will be gracious to you. God has the grace to rescue us from our destructive love of this earth's wisdom. Do you want to be rescued from your attachment to earthly wisdom, do you? Or are you content to sleep around on God? Are you banking on the chance that God really hasn't become your outraged enemy? Are are you saying, I'm betting scriptures wrong on this point? Or will you say, oh Lord, I have slept around on you. How might I find grace? And the rest of the passage tells us how. Watch, verse 6 tells us that it all comes down to humility. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, you have to humble yourself. How you say, well, that's easier said than done. True, but God gives grace, remember? And something else. In his grace, God reveals the pathway to wisdom. We can put it this way. Humility is obtained through disciplines. In the rest of our passage, that is, from verse 7 and following, have a look at the list. First, from verse 7, submit to God. Today, you can agree to obey God. You can yield to him. I know that's easier said than done. Well, that's true. But you can right now bow your head and say, God, when you command, I will obey. Do it. Tell him. And when you ask him to change your heart, tell him that you want to be done with worldly wisdom. Tell him you want to stop sinning. Stop resisting God. Humble yourself. Bow your head. Tell God, give me grace to obey you. Indeed, plead with him for that. Second, according to verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I know. I know that for some of us, that's not been our experience. We've tried to resist the temptations that come from the evil one, and and it hasn't seemed that he has fled at all. Indeed, we think he mocks our poor efforts to resist, for he knows he has us. But did you notice that James links submission to God with resistance to Satan? See, we've got to submit to God, but we must fight back against the devil. I wonder if you've ever noticed how often, as in 1 Corinthians 6.18, 1 Corinthians 10, 14, 1 Timothy 6, 11, passages like that. 
We're told to flee our unrighteous desires, to flee sexual immorality, to flee ungodliness. That is, one of the ways we resist the devil is we make up our minds to flee from those places that tempt us. Look at it this way. If you're overwhelmingly tempted by money, stealing it, might I suggest that you get off your church offering count team. And in the same way, if you're tempted to abuse authority and lord it over others, that you get off your church leadership team. Resist the devil. Submit to God. Give the devil no foothold. Don't give him that chance to tempt you where you're weak, and you'll find that he will flee from you. Third, from verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. How do we do that? Well, for one, when you sin, don't you run from God. Run to God. Confess your sins. Meditate on verses like 1 John 1, 9, that, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't wait to confess. Confess instantly. Don't you stay away from church either. Pray without ceasing. Set aside a daily time for prayer. Read your Bible regularly. Be with men and women who urge you towards God. Let them encourage you. And fourth, from verse 8, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Translation, change those external things that keep leading you back to sin. You know, cleansing our hands means to change external things. What's feeding your sin right now? Why don't you change that? And to purify your heart means that we become centered on one thing. Stop vacillating on this. Make up your mind to follow God. Now, fifth, from verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Translation here, become genuinely remorseful for your sins. The time for laughter is not now. The time has come to make an inventory of your sins and to begin to weep. Weep because of wasted opportunities. Weep because of the fights you've been in. Grieve over your lack of prayer. Become overwhelmed by the illicit loves in your life. Let the depths of your sin become overwhelming to you so that the depravity of them simply overwhelms you. You might say, if I do that, it will devastate me. Maybe I have devastated everyone else, but now you're asking me to devastate myself. Yep. I must pull down all the things that I take pride in. Light your worldly house on fire. Burn it down. Make no excuses. Stop caring about how others see you. Tell God exactly who you really are. Confess your sins. And, and by the way, he already knows who you are. And now comes the promise. That promise is found in verse 10. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And, and here's the key. In God's economy, Humility does not lead to humiliation. In God's economy, humility leads to prominence. If you remain proud and resistant to God, God will humble you. If you're humble, God will exalt you. You've got to believe that. With God, all the tables are turned. Those who want the world will lose the world. Those who, for the sake of Christ, forsake the world will gain the world. See, what's fascinating about all of this is that James sounds so much like Jesus, doesn't he? Matthew 16, 26, Jesus says, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? 
And James says, what if you fight and grasp for the things of this world and in the process become an enemy of God? See, it's the same truth. It's the same thought. But here's the marvelous truth. God offers the whole world for those who forsake the whole world. So do you want wisdom from above? Lose your worldly passions and find a passion for the glory of God. Be content when little is made of you and rejoice much when much is made of God. Rejoice that you have become a friend of God even if you are ill-spoken of in this world. You know, some of us remember that interesting conversation that once occurred among Jesus' disciples. Matthew 20, the sons of Zebedee, along with the urging of their mother, wanted that they be given seats of greatest prominence in the kingdom to come. And, and that caused an immediate response among the other disciples. And the whole thing just degenerated into a fight. And Jesus responded by saying, Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let Christ be your example. See, if you want to win the war against worldly wisdom, the kind of wisdom that creates conflict among believers, well, if you want that, don't seek prominence. Rather, look for a place where you can serve. Look for a place where you can serve others and be content. For God will give you prominence in due time. And that, my friends, is godly wisdom. And that, my friends, will draw you near to God. John, thanks so much for your message today. I want to go back to a quote, though, that you mentioned by John Piper. I, I thought it was amazing. It said, No one ever stood before the Grand Canyon, seeing it for the first time, and said, I'm amazed at my greatness. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and the point really is that once you see the greatness of God, you, you become humble. It's just, it's just who we become, Ben. And, you know, it's, it's wonderful to allow thoughts of self to kind of swim away as I'm just overly consumed with thoughts of God. And maybe what we need more than anything else is this seeing the, the glory and the majesty of the God that we love. Uh, we need to talk more about God. We need to emphasize his attributes more. We need to talk about what a wonderful thing it is to submit ourselves to God. And, and just sometimes we need to stop making application to ourselves about everything and, and just allow ourselves to make application to the greatness and the glory of God. So it's, a, it's really a wonderful truism. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week for a continuation of our series on James right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. We've all been guilty of taking for granted that God's Word is always the perfect Word and available to us at all times. That's why we wanted to share with you an amazing book that will surely lift your thinking towards Bible reading for the better. It's called Before You Open Your Bible by Matt Smethurst. In this insightful resource, you'll find wisdom and guidance on how to approach your Bible with a positive mindset so you get the most out of your time in His Word. And because the message in this book is in sync with the mission of Back to the Bible Canada, we're making this resource available as a gift free 
during the month of July. Simply call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca to request your copy for free today.